Thank you. 
What's up, listeners? That brings us to the end of the Radio Blackout program. want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Go enjoy your families, your festive feast, your drunk uncles, your mindless debates over organized sports, all of that good stuff. Uh, save some leftovers for next week. We'll be back, same time, same place. Radio Blackout here at 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Stay tuned for Living Writers coming up next. Come on, baby, let me tell you all the things I want to say. Come on, baby, let me tell you all the things I want to say. Everybody's going to be happy. It's me, you and me, my love. Chad Fair from Half Japanese, and you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And today in the studio, I'm so pleased to have Jonathan Lethem here. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, <laughs> well, it's great to see you in person again. <laughs> um, so Jonathan is actually in the midst of a, a, a national tour for yep. his latest novel, <laughs> Chronic City. Going everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and, and still some spots to come. You were in Seattle. I, we was, I was in Seattle. I was all up and down the West Coast and came back by way of Denver right in time for like a three-foot snowstorm. And uh, now, now I, and then I've just bounced back from New York City and I'm doing a little what Great Lakes swing. 
<laughs> the third coast. Yeah. <laughs> that. Um, well, before we go any further, Jonathan, I'll read um, your super short bio in the back of Chronic City, and then we can fill in some pieces even. Great. Um, Jonathan Lethem is the author of seven novels, a recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship. Lethem has published his stories and essays in The New Yorker, Harper's, Rolling Stone, Esquire, and The New York Times, among others. Okay. Well, what could we possibly add to that? <laughs> well, right. Sound, sounds very, uh, very, very official. But I've also been published in a lot of magazines with names like Bomb and, and Turd and Egg and... <laughs> Uh, Lockjaw and you know and McSweeney's. catastrophe. And, yeah, exactly. Um, well, that and somehow those seem very fitting. Yeah, as, yeah. as well. <laughs> um, and and so you were actually you're you're one of the few people that I've met that you were born in Brooklyn, New York, well, instead of I'm moving so, there. So glad you raised this because this is actually the the most widely disseminated um, misinformation ab 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 about me, and 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 I have no hope of ever refuting it. It seems right to people, so it's going to. Be one of those. Um, Where were you born, Jonathan? I was born in Manhattan. Oh. <laughs> um, my parents were living in uh, in uh, in Soho before it was uh, a, a place where people were really supposed to live. They were in an illegal loft on uh, on West Broadway. You know uh, when that was actually illegal, and if they'd been crafty enough to buy something there, they'd be really rich now. But but. Um, and it was a sort of commune, was it? Well, this or? was when my, my dad was a painter, and this was at the beginning. He was, uh, it was just the two of them, and and then a baby, uh, who was me, and then uh, eventually, after a, a couple of moves, uh, when I was four, we settled into a big brownstone in Brooklyn, and that's where I grew up, and that's that's where I've, you know, uh, written about my childhood a lot, and so that's what everyone identifies w with you know understandably and so so suddenly i seem to have been born in brooklyn but yeah it was a it was a big enough house that it was kind of and my parents were were hippies and you know uh part of the counterculture and so there were always students and activists and friends crashing in the extra bedrooms and you know at times it was a semi official commune uh i kind of grew up surrounded by uh interesting other adults besides my parents and and you said and you mentioned that your father was a painter, and and um, and and then your mom was more of a political activist yeah. of the time. Yeah, an organizer or a troublemaker. She she got <laughs> rabble rouser. Yeah, she got arrested uh, uh, a few times. And once, pretty pr pretty famously, part of something called the, I think it was the Capitol Steps Thirteen, a group of protesters that got moved off the Capitol Steps, and then later, with the help of the ACLU, sued. Uh, on the grounds that that was actually public property and that people were allowed to to be there, and uh, some of that money helped, you know, send me to, off to college from the settlement. Well, thank goodness for our <laughs> our um, <laughs> thank goodness for that because not, not that I made particularly good use of college. Well, it seems like you dropped out, and if that's if that's even in true, because you yeah, know what, I will true. tell you that it says on Wikipedia that you were born in Brooklyn. So I'm maybe sure if does. someone could yeah. edit that, then some of the. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you, you, you start chasing down the errors on Wikipedia, and next <laughs> thing you know, you're 90 years old with a long gray beard. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But um, uh, let's see. But Oh, but so when you started, you were going to, it seems like, follow in the footsteps of your dad with the painting. That was yes, I your thought first I was art, be an art direction. Art, art 
kid, art student, and I, I, I was for a long time. I went to um, the High School of Music and Art in, in Manhattan, which... which um, Is that what's based on, like, fame? Is yeah, that, it's uh, sort of the fame school. I okay. mean, it, it's a little... The story's a little complicated, because in the 70s, when I was there, it was split into two schools, the performing arts building and the music and art building, and they, the two of us didn't have that much to do with each other, and it was, you know, the, the sort of dancing on the on the, the, on the, the desks, cafeteria people table. were all at the performing arts <laughs> building, whereas the the sneering painters and and um, and and a lot of kids who were who were in like you know teenage punk bands were in my building. So we thought fame was pretty uh, was pretty pretty pathetic, but it was kind of our our school. And um, uh, and you were in a, you were in a, always in like a, like a punk band or no, in bands. No, I was always or... hanging out with the bands. It's really <laughs> uh, it's really um, I, I'm very embarrassed when I get credit for for being a musician because I'm not one. I don't have the the skill set, but I was always hanging out with friends in bands and sometimes writing their lyrics for them, which is something I've gone on doing. And sometimes I get a kind of token, you know, official membership in a band as a result. Or oh, once or twice I've taken the vocals, but since I can't sing either, that's not a really great idea. And um, uh, but, but can you shout? I can kind of shout. Yeah. And it seems like that's part of one of your new projects too. The is it the um, promiscuous m- method? Is uh, pres- promiscuous materials project. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and it it does it does involve me um, again pathetically writing lyrics and begging musicians to record them. So there's some of them online, and people can grab onto them. And there's also examples if you're curious, MP3s that have been posted by musicians who did uh, take some of the lyrics and make songs. So it's a whole little kind of you know collaborative zone there on, on my website and it's even for stories like you you offer stories up yeah. for, to filmmakers or yeah, I, i've got a bunch of my short stories that instead of you know making them exclusive and expensive for people to adapt into stories uh these ones are are up for grabs and people can for a dollar for a dollar i think yeah. there's yeah. some sort of yeah. can I, I love that idea and it seems like that came out of some like a a collaboration that you did with McSweeney's was it, Jonathan, or, well, or, uh, actually, or an idea? I, I think I know what you're you're thinking of. It's um, I wrote I wrote lyrics for a band called One Ring Zero, that and McSweeney's published a whole record of different writers collaborating with the same one band, and so it's a kind of similar overlapping kind of kind of uh, project. But actually, the um, the inspiration for my having that promiscuous materials part of my website was that I had just written this long, crazy essay uh, that I published in Harper's called The Ecstasy of Influence. What a great title. Thank I you. thought that, yeah. Thank you. And, and, and it, it was a, basically a piece of you know, provocation um, and advocacy in favor of free culture. Your mom would be proud. I, I, hope, I hope so. And so, um, so having done this, having basically called for not exactly the abolition of copyright or intellectual property, but trying to shake up the whole... Uh, all the assumed, you know, uh, stuff about about how every piece of writing needs to be a commodity. I decided, okay, I need to like kind of decommodify a few of my pieces too, if I want to be, you know, I, w- I need to put my money where my mouth is. So I, I I created this part of my my own art practice where I'm giving some stuff away. And that that is one that is wonderful. And do you think that was that was more possible because of, for example, like the success of Motherless Brooklyn in 1999, because you'd already staked a claim in some sort of like literary or intellectual 
territory where well, you have the Lethem yeah. flag. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, it, it's it's a it's a it's complicated to sort of talk about doing it from my stance because I'm I am you know basically a a a, a mid career artist with a very traditional career, and I I do make my living from copyrights and so on. And I mean, the irony is most people who are very involved with free culture gestures are beginners or they're sort of anarchists who never want to enter the the commercial mainstream in any way and typically writers or artists of musicians whoever they are who reach a, a kind of success comparable to what I've uh, been fortunate enough to have uh, kind of harden up about this stuff and they don't give anything away and I thought I uh, that doesn't seem that uh, makes less sense it makes less it? sense maybe I should you know do some of both and so I thought you know why not um, defy the the uh, the, the stodgy profile that I, you know that that my career might seem to be taking on by fooling around with some of this um, you know uh, um, free culture stuff. Yeah, and I, I imagine, and you said that um, you read the book uh, by Lewis Hyde, The Gift, too. Yeah, so terrific book, um, very inspiring. I mean, you know, there there are several really brilliant advocates uh, for this kind of um, you know framework, this way of thinking about copyright or or cultural. Ex expression or intertextuality and sampling and all that cool stuff. Uh, Lawrence Lessig is a lawyer who's a big advocate, and, and Lewis Hyde is probably the most poetic and, and kind of uh, inspirational writer on the subject. Well, it, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> That's for sure. That's my intellectual insight yeah, well, for the moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and it seems like uh, definitely your main character from Chronic City would be all about that. Um, Perkis Tooth um, is like would be an evangelist yeah, for this yeah. very idea. Well, his aesthetics are very much collage aesthetics. You know, he he. That's what he makes those. He appropriates broadsides, stuff, and right? then he puts it up for free. You know, he recombines other people's texts, and he paste it on the wall where anyone can see it. So, yeah, in, in a way, without having any um, uh, conscious um, interest in free culture, he's a perfect uh, exemplar of that. Was that, um, was that character, um, like, did, did you know, like, do you know anyone that's like that, like somebody like that that you know or knew? Yeah, he's, or he's a, a he, comes from, he comes several. from a whole lot of <laughs> different places, friends of mine and parts of myself and you know a couple of particular folks uh i've, I've mentioned uh, and and i like mentioning uh actually especially up here in the in the the region where he's from um paul nelson is a, a the late paul nelson a great music writer who um was from uh, minnesota and was actually a teenage buddy of bob dylan's and I happened to, to get to know him when I was in my early 20s, and he was a kind of mentor to me and opened the door to a lot of stuff. So that part of this character, Perkis Tooth, where he's kind of a, a guru of culture, comes a little bit from Paul. Not that, not that Paul really resembles Perkis in other particulars, but yes, he's, he, you know, he's, he's an intimate character for me. He's based on the kind of person I'm attracted to again and again, the kind of guy I like to hang out with. Yeah, because it's kind of, and it's a brilliant opportunity, isn't it, to hold forth somehow? Yeah. Like the idea is pouring, pouring. But yeah. he's also an example of someone who's, you know, self-destructive and kind of can't be, you want to take care of that kind of person and you can't. They're, they're, they're beyond repair. We know a few artists like that, perhaps. 
or people yeah yeah well let's take a short break um great because we're not going to repair anyone <laughs> um today on living writers i'm so happy to have jonathan Leatham here his latest a novel chronic city i'm t hetzel we'll be back Sun with a Thompson gun for hire, fighting to be done. The deal was made in Denmark on a dark and stormy day. So he set out for Biafra to join the bloody fray. Through 66 and 7, they fought the Congo War with their fingers on their triggers. They battled the band to to their knees. They killed to earn their living and to help out the Congolese. Oh, I'm the Thompson Gunner. Oh, I'm the Thompson Gunner. His comrades fought beside him. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, today on Living Writers, Jonathan Leatham is here. His book, his latest, Chronic City. Um, and that, yeah, that was a little bit of Warren Zevon. Am I saying his name right? Yeah, it was Zevon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we missed some of the, the great vocal layering that was to come, but but it's important. Jonathan, you're here. I know. We want to talk with you. We could just listen to music all day. <laughs> we could. That's a, that'll be another show. <laughs> um, will you read a bit from the novel for sure, us? Sure, you bet. Um, this is um, so the two the two guys who who are the heart of this book, the narrator uh, Chase and his crazy friend Perkis, who we were just describing a little bit, and uh, this is a, just a. A moment between Perkis and Chase that that um, I think I think m might might amuse you. Um, Perkis rifled through his CDs to find a record he wished to play me, a record I didn't know. Peter Blegvad's "Something Else Is Working Harder." The song was an angry and incoherent blues. It sounded to me, gnarled with disgruntlement at those who quote unquote get away with murder. Then, as if riled by the music, he turned and said almost savagely, "So." I'm not a rock critic, you know. Okay, I said. This was a point I found it easy enough to grant. People will say I am, he told me, because I wrote for Rolling Stone, but in fact I hardly ever write about music. It seemed to me the broadsides hung around his rooms were full of references to pop songs, but I hesitated to point out the contradiction. Perkis seemed to read my mind. Even when I do write about music, I don't use that language. Oh, I said. Those people, he said, the rock critics, I mean, do you want to know what they really are? Oh, sure, I said, what are they? Super high-functioning autistics. Oh, I don't mean they're diagnosed or anything, but I diagnose them that way. They've got Asperger's syndrome. I mean, in the same sense that, say, David Byrne or Al Gore has it. They're brilliant, but they're social misfits. Hmm, how do you know, I asked. As far as I knew, I'd never met anyone with Asperger's syndrome or, for that matter, a rock critic, although I had once seen David Byrne at a party. 
yet I'd heard enough already to find it odd hearing Perkis Tooth denouncing misfits. It's the way they talk, he said. He leaned in close to me and demonstrated his point as he spoke. They aspirate their vowels nearer to the fronts of their mouths. Wow, I said. Yes, and when you see them talking in groups, he said, they do it even more. It's self-reinforcing. Rock critics gather for purposes of mutual consolation, though they'd never call it that. They believe they're experts. Perkis, whether he knew it or not, continued to aspirate his vowels at the front of his mouth as he made his case. They can't see the forest for the trees, he went on. Self-reinforcing experts, I said, trying it on for size. Can't see the forest for the trees. I am, by deepest instinct, a mimic. That's right, said Perkis seriously. Some of them even whistle when they speak. Whistle? Exactly. Well then, I said, thank God we're not rock critics. Thank you, Jonathan. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting now, having just finished the novel, that to hear from the beginning their like early stages of their uh, relationship, yeah. it's it's so funny and and nice that he's kind of diagno- self diagnosing in some ways. Right, right, right. Well, the whole book, you know, I guess the title is a giveaway. The whole book is sort of about uh, something's rotten in the, you know, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Something's gone wrong, and everyone's diagnosing everybody all the time. And yes, and and so many um, layers of illusion, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and Chronic City, it's nice because that's also comes back as um, uh, Chronic being one of the names of uh, the marijuana that's being right. sold. Right. Um, it's a brand name. Yeah, and ice, and uh, which which I think was like a like a setup for the, like the to prepare slightly for the polar bear, maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. That's good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. If that's what you keep want going, it to be, going. right? <laughs> if that's what you see in it. <laughs> but um, uh, what about the, let's talk about um, naming your character, something very small in, in a very large book. But um, the um, we've got Perkis Tooth, um, and it, that's unusual. And then Chase and Steadman. Um, so how overtly did you want it? to like the instedman part yeah you know it's a kind of <laughs> and chase like chasing and <laughs> it's a throbbing embarrassing awkward symbol isn't it but <laughs> i like crazy names that 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 do stuff and that are also really memorable i i've always liked that i you know i grew up reading dickens and 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 thomas pynchon and i always thought it was terrific when the names were you know made my head spin and and char you know they seemed like charged particles that you know, bounced around through the meanings of the book. So and, and inseparable from the character. Yeah, like it exactly. was just meant to be or so. Yeah, well, for me, I usually don't even have a character until I've made up their name. And that's when they start to take on some tangible quality for me. So, um, and, uh, and it, it sets up a great scene with um, Lindsay from Jackson Hole, too, doesn't it? Right, right. The waitress who who, who mistakes Chase and Stedman for uh, uh, Unperson. She thinks his last name might be Unperson. Yeah. And it, it's funny how this is really at the core of what one of the, well, the thing that this character grapples with. Yeah, well, but uh, he also gets called, um, his name gets mistaken another time in the book when when that uh, that charming black kid is leading them up the hill to look at the sculpture. And he hears, um, he hears Una called, call him Chase, but he mishears it and, and thinks his first name is Cheese. So he starts addressing him as Cheese. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> and, I think the very and a former child actor yeah, to be addressed yeah. as Cheese. Yeah, so he's Cheese Unperson, really. <laughs> you thought his you thought his name was strange, but his real name is even stranger. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you were talking about influences, like the Dickens from the early childhood. When did you come up? Like when did you come to Philip K. Dick? Like when did that? Well, I got I was lucky. I I um, I stumbled uh, into his books. Philip K. Dick's books uh, when I was about 12 or 13. Actually, I wasn't even really ready for them. I was sort of almost just stared at the covers and wondered what, what they were like. But by the time I Because they were psychedelic, those yeah, covers. Yeah. yeah. By the time I was 14 or 15, I was reading him very avidly and hunting up each and every last one of his, you know, 35 or 40, at that time, out-of-print novels and, and devouring them. He became a very formative influence for me. And, and uh, What was it about the science fiction or that the imaginative... Well, you know, I I think I grew up in a kind of a science fiction world in a couple of different ways. Uh, you know, New York City is is a very strange city of the future in many ways compared to the the rest of you know human history. It's it's a place that's um, not grounded in you know ancient history or religion. It's a place founded on commerce and and possibilities and you know ambition and. Uh, but when I was growing up there in the 70s, it was also kind of a dystopian place. It had really fallen apart. So I felt like I sort of lived in a ruined city of the future. And then even further, my parents were really, um, you know, uh, outside the mainstream of culture. You know, we regarded ourselves as sort of um, uh, fringe people. You know, and there's something science fiction-y about the hippies to begin with. They were like a utopian concept gone, gone haywire, gone to seed by the time uh, by the time I came along, and so I, I think I identified with a lot of a lot of that stuff. And Philip K. Dick was a great writer in that he expressed both some of the um, seductions of visions of the future, but mostly he showed how um, pathetic and corrupt and and you know overwhelmed by by capitalism most most uh, you know projects were going to end up being. And and I think he. He kind of called it. He kind of named the world we live in right now. Uh, so um, I, I just uh, – and he's just also terrifically funny and and strange, you know, writer, great storyteller. And things are not what they seem. Things are never what they seem. And 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 they aren't. I mean, I, I've been – I've been um, – I, I think I was given a real heads up <laughs> by reading his books because – um, they just aren't, and um, and and you know, I think we live in a in a in a in a moment that's very interesting because the the virtual life is kind of interpenetrating reality all over the place, uh, and you know the thing about it is it's not like the predictions where you know uh, if you if you listen to you know Silicon Valley in the mid '80s when virtual reality and the internet was being first proposed it was sort of going to be this glossy seamless new future where we'd leave our, leave our bodies behind and everything would become very you know um very futuristic but instead it's just a strange kind of you know the internet is like a weird endless uh catastrophe of you know old and new and you know kind of podunk areas that people go to and hang out all the time and it's just it's like a you know a mirror to the to the complexity of the real world. It doesn't hasn't cleaned up or organized anything at all. It's just made it doubly more 
more strange and, and impossible to, to figure out, you know, uh, what's useful to you or what matters to you. And there's so much of it. And then there's so much of it. <laughs> Couldn't we just make the internet smaller, please? <laughs> I know a couple of curmudgeons here. <laughs> Join us for the rest it's of the so hour. Big. <laughs> Could you just make it a little smaller? Exactly. But then, but in the book, it's like it's you have um, you introduce like the this um, other other yet another world yeah, is yeah. your internet world, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's like the internet. Why do you say it like, it's like an yeah, internet yeah. within the internet? Well, I mean, it's you know, it's a very esoteric image. Uh, but then again, people do very esoteric things, like go to this place called Second Life. But you know, in a funny that's way, that's why this is funny that it's like yet another, you know, it's like yet another world. World, third life, or maybe fifth life. But I, you know, in a way, How many I do you need. I don't even think that that's you have to even think about that stuff. I know a lot. If if a lot of people who are like me feel a lot of resistance to that esoteric stuff you know I've never gone to Second Life I don't want to go there um, but the reason I put eBay in the book is because you know everyone kind of goes to eBay without even thinking twice about it here's this like weird virtual store that's really not you know on its face very futuristic or or exotic but it's totally crazy there's this imaginary store that everyone goes and like buys stuff from each other on now and it's just part of everyone's life and it's like routine for people to be like oh yeah just a second i gotta check my ebay auction so it's a part of the way this virtual life has just colonized our daily existence in a very you know kind of homely way um but it bears it bears noticing i think anyway i wanted to try to try to notice it a bit because it's yet another surreal dimension, which is just like walking around as well. Yeah. Whether you're in New York City or on Ann Arbor Main Street, it's still surreal, isn't it? Um, well, here, what, we have some more time with more um, strange things to come and more commercially moments from Jonathan Lethem and T. Hetzel on Living Writers. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Jonathan Lethem, his latest novel, Chronic City. And you've got WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. So, uh, that song, Jonathan. That, yeah, that's something else is working harder. That's the Peter Blugvad song that I mentioned in the, in the reading just before, although it's being performed there by the Golden Palominos. Um, and I guess it was a, that was kind of like imaginary supergroup, a virtual group. And Peter Blegvad was a, was a member of it, um, kind of. But I don't think that's him singing, the, unless he's, his, his voice is really altered. I don't think he's the singer on it. It's too bad it couldn't be the, the golden unicorn Palominos. <laughs> in, in, uh, in yet another world, they can be the golden unicorn Palominos. Well, so there's one reason for it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, so you had this this kind of interesting trajectory where you thought um, that you were going to be a painter like your dad, and you started off in that direction, and then went to um, Bennington, and then had some sort of a like I'm now I'm paraphrasing your life, which yeah. is probably weird. No, it's, good. <laughs> it's much better than me, me having to do it. Um, you had an epiphany of sorts, yeah. like wow, we weren't like. Do you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, sure. It was sort of sneaking up on me that I wanted to, to write stories and, and novels instead. And, you know, in retrospect, it's really obvious. I was, de I was devoted to, to reading, and, and I fantasized about the lives of writers. I was reading biographies of writers. So even as I was painting, you know, in some ways this was like the, the, the secret, the lurking identity for me. And when I got to college and uh, didn't love the art classes there, partly because I'd taken so many already at that point. I was very impatient with them, um, having been an art student all through high school. I started a novel, uh, the, you know, uh, on winter break on my first first full year as a my freshman year. And um, I just was so much more interested in that than, than was in... Was that Heroes or what? Yeah, it would have been called... Uh, no, it that, that one was... Uh, the title was um, from a Devo song. It was... Apes in the Plan. And, um, you know, I wasn't good at it yet. And I, I had this facility with, with visual art because I'd been practicing it for so long and I was very awkward with writing at first. But I still, it was much more, uh, you know, um, much closer to my heart in some way. I wanted to do stuff with characters and language and, and time. You know, paintings don't really occur in time. And in fact, I'd been, you know, even in high school, I'd been fiddling with tempting forms that combined the visual arts with with narrative. I'd been thinking about making film and fooling around with animated film a little bit, and I wanted to be a comic book artist at one point. So it was really obvious that I just wanted to tell stories. And you made zines I during zines. that time, yeah. too. Yeah. So, But what was it about time? Like, what do you mean by that, where the, the book is... Because you can be in a whole... Like, you can have time passing during the moment of the artifact, the book, whereas with a painting, it's... Yeah, narrative's move through time and okay. paintings kind of stop it and, and, and freeze moments. And I, I, I've just always been very interested in memory and situation and, and, and language uh, and language. And yeah, I just, I was, I was for, for a hundred reasons, I was better suited to, to doing what I do now. So you hitchhiked across the country. You left Bennington. <laughs> you said goodbye. I like your transition. Um, <laughs> goodbye, yeah, Snooty so Snooterson. I need to be a writer. I'm going <laughs> to hitchhike. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, this was, you know, uh, another complicated passage in my life was I wasn't very content as a student 
in, at college where I was. And so was it because it seems like how it was pre- like what I read about you, Jonathan, yeah. was that it was this also this realization that your family because because you had always been it had been unusual and, and your mom and dad, what they had created for you there in the bohemian lifestyle or mm-hmm. so. And and so when you got to Bennington, there was like this this idea like, oh, there are these other people that have this this like all this like money or whatever like something yeah. as simple yeah. as that that realization too i mean this and this is something that in some ways you can still me s- see me still working out in a book like chronic city that privilege upset me uh, because i partly because i'd been raised to believe in some way that we were in some much more egalitarian reality than 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 was was the truth my parents were idealists and and you know the bohemian world that 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 i came up uh came came of age within um w- in a way was a was a pretend zone where uh class and race you know these things had been sorted out and they were no there was no longer these kind of divisions between people but because it was the ideas it was something yeah. and the passion it was something about that yeah. that was their, their more idealism I, I i kind of i i i believed it too completely and so uh even though bennington was a very interesting place to be and i and and i i was wasting a lot of great opportunities to hang out with amazingly talented other students and really fascinating, you know, teachers. And it's beautiful there. Yeah, and it's beautiful mm-hmm. there. I I had a kind of ab reaction to um to this discovery that, you know, all of these kids who who were there with me had all gone to private school and had no idea what my experience of public school was like and that that was part of their being on a possibly a fast track to take assume kind of positions of privilege uh, you know, going forward, and and I felt a little bit probably ashamed of of my poverty, really, and but also defiant about it. I I I was sort of um, sticking to to the idea that my parents had instilled in me, even though I was learning that that it wasn't so simple. So you went hitchhiking. I I rode <laughs> across the country, and <laughs> so I went hitchhiking. It solves so many things. And you survived. Yeah, I did. I, I I'm still alive. And um, yeah, I mean, I had this image partly cobbled together from like the the beats from Jack Kerouac that you know uh, you run away to the to the west from from the old moneyed east, and there in the west you would find a wide open place of you know, self-reinvention and you would possibility. Find a, a used bookstore to work in. And that's what I did. I found a used bookstore to work in. And, um, and I, you know, I made a very kind of perfect starving artist life for myself in Berkeley, California for a decade uh, where I, I was a bookstore clerk and I wrote my first few novels. I figured out how to do that. Uh, you know, the one after um, Apes in the Plan, the, the impossibly bad first novel, became my officially published first novel, my my what most people think of as my first novel, Gun with Occasional Music. And, you know, I had to hammer at it for a long time. It was published when I was 30, which is to say, you know, basically a decade after leaving uh, leaving the scene. But uh, how do you figure it out, Jonathan? Like, when you said, like, and you hammered at it, like, w- what does that mean? Does it mean that you were, like, you had absorbed so much of what you loved and been, like, in the, those yeah. worlds You're of those learning novels? How to, how to, how to, you know how to make narratives work and and you do that yes by absorbing t- you know huge volumes of them and i was reading all kinds of books in those in those days and um like raymond chandler as well yeah, like there well, were those influences the, all of the west coast uh 
hardboiled detective writers became very important to me. Uh, and the, Jim Thompson. The, 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 the sort of seminal ones, Ross MacDonald and, and, uh, and, and Chandler especially. And, and uh, you know, it's one reason that first, bu- that first published book was a, was a kind of a hardboiled detective story itself. And, and by studying those books, I learned something about how to just get a, a kind of a, a narrative up on its feet, get, get stories, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to fly a little bit. And, um, and that was this, and that book became a success because somebody made a film of it. No, so they never have. They, oh, they, they ha- keep oh, trying. Oh, they keep okay. trying. Um, it's been, uh, it's, it's funny. It's a perennial like film bait, that book. It's been optioned <laughs> by three different filmmakers over the years and maybe still stands a chance of getting done someday. The, the guy who has it right now, who's, who's, I'm, I'm thrilled about because I, I, I think he's a really, kind of terrific uh, filmmaker is uh, Henry Selleck, whom he makes uh, like gloomy, intense animated films. He made um, uh, Coraline, and he, he made, um, I mean, he's, his most famous thing, everyone thinks uh, someone else made it. He made uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas for Tim Burton. And Tim Burton produced that movie, but his, his name is so famous that his name is sort of on it. But Henry, Henry Selleck was the animator. And... Um, and he's uh, he's cool. I think he might make something pretty great out of it. Who knows? Uh, but it seems. But did that first optioner did that? Because it seems like did that give you having some it, sort of a absolutely having it optioned. Forget making a film. Just having it optioned uh, gave me this incredible uh, chance because the the money back then uh, for me as a, a you know a, a 30, 31 year old uh, bookstore clerk was a tremendous opportunity to sort of stop uh, working in the bookshop and, and, and live full-time as a writer. Of course, it's ironic now because that was very much like, you know, living alone in a tiny apartment in Berkeley standards. If I'd been given the sim- same amount of money today, I'd just, like, use it to pay off one credit card bill, and it wouldn't change anything. But um, but then it, w- it seemed... It was a different time. It seemed like I was made, and... and uh, but that, and you could take that risk. Yeah, exactly. I could take that risk. I didn't have health insurance, and I, I, I just was, uh, was, was willing to, to take a leap into the unknown. And so I, I, uh, I it seemed like um, the greatest, the greatest opportunity and vote of confidence that the world could possibly hand me. And, and then you, and and then you got the MacArthur grant some years later. Yeah, which is <laughs> so a, there you go, the genius same kind mantle. Of thing on on this on a larger scale. I mean, it just was it was a rescue at the time it came along, and it, it yeah it let me keep going, doing just only the work I wanted to do. And Chronic City is very directly the result of of that piece of luck. Yeah, and and it's also what you 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 definitely made of the luck with that because i can only imagine like if you had stopped working at the bookstore suddenly you have like a life without like the the monday through like because a bookstore you work almost all the week you could work on the weekend as well yeah. so then there's so you must have had some sort of determination where you knew how to run into this writing like or where you were determined or something yeah i i never have had that um anxiety at having too many hours free in the day i know some some writers get tripped up the first chance they have to be full-time because suddenly this, like, you know, this, there's this d- desert of hours and they don't know how to fill them all. But I was... Or, like, the wealth of hours yeah, or so. <laughs> yeah, 
So I I uh, I didn't I didn't for whatever reason I didn't stumble over that. I was I was excited to have more time to write and and put it to pretty good use, and uh, you know haven't really ever ever looked back. And you were able to finish projects too. Yeah. It's just, I yeah, guess I, I'm, I'm a pretty good finisher. <laughs> that comes from it comes from my obsessive compulsive disorder. I like I like revising things and fixing them. So and kind of getting in there. Yeah. Well, well, well. Great. So more on this when we come back. Great. We're going to take a short break um, today on the program. Jonathan Lethem, his latest novel, Chronic City. I'm T Hetzel, and we've got Brian Delaney in the engineering seat. We'll be back. nothing to do and there's nothing to say everything I know I knew yesterday until something new comes around let's go take some drugs drive around Oh, let's do something dumb Get into a fight I'd rather get beat up And sit around all night Let's go get some lights Let's go get some sound Go get some drugs. Let's go drive around. <laughs> You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Jonathan Lethem is here. His novel, Chronic City. And um, Jonathan's been driving around, no flying around on, yeah. on a book yeah. tour and uh, midway through surviving. Well, you, know, you can take more drugs if you're flying because you're <laughs> answerable to no, you know, no authority. It's true. Just sometimes. a passenger. <laughs> <laughs> um, and sometimes you need beta blockers or whatever, yeah. you know, just, just to keep on going. What, what, what's that? I don't know what that is. <laughs> I know. That could be a whole nother segment. <laughs> Will you come back again, yes. Jonathan, and yeah. <laughs> continue this conversation? Dr. Lethem is at the mic. <laughs> exactly. Five <Okay>. cents. <laughs> no, there's been an inflation since peanuts, I'm, I'm sure. Um, so, so Jonathan, like you, you've got this. So you write. Um, do, have you ever written a poem? Oh, I wrote a bunch of poems when I was uh, in college. Actually, in that transitional moment that we were just talking about, I thought for a little while I, I could I could be a poet. And and in some ways that impulse still, you know, kind of hides uh, inside all this song lyric writing that I do for 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 friends who are musicians. Um, I like I like rhyming and I like kind of fiddling with with poetic lines and and compression um but i don't think i think i you know my natural uh, uh leaning is to to make long crazy s- stories to be elaborate and and go on for for years the, the way i do in the novels <laughs> i wonder if you could do some sort of very long disjointed crazy poem I, too though I probably could. with the lyric yeah. but then i might also challenge you okay. <laughs> <laughs> or so, but you might it's a better challenge than, than than going back and fixing all the problems of of Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, your long gray beard. <laughs> in either case, I'd end up with a long gray beard. But um, but 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 
that would be a more satisfying way to get there. Yeah, I wonder what, yeah, what would, well, you know, when I read your book, Motherless Brooklyn, um, which I loved that some, it's weird how the years pile up, like some time ago now. Um, yeah, it's a 10 year old book. Yeah. Look, it can walk, it can move around, it plays baseball now. <laughs> but I didn't, I guess I didn't understand the significance of the title just until today, too, with um, like that, that loss and, and being, I guess, like how those pieces of autobiography, of course, are always driving are like the fiction as well. Yeah. Yeah, it gets in everywhere. I mean, I, I, I pretty much can't even start being interested in a book or a or set of characters if I'm not kind of laying something about myself out, out there. But it, it, it hides at different levels of the work. So sometimes a book will seem autobiographical to people the way, uh, well, especially one called The Fortress of Solitude that came after Motherless Brooklyn does. It invites that, that thought. It, you know, it strikes people as being personal. But all, they're all personal. They, they always have that element. Yeah. Even the science fiction ones. Oh, yeah. I mean, in a way, the, the most I – mean, you're, you're speaking of my mother's death when I was 14. The most directly I've ever gone at that is in uh, the book that precedes Motherless Brooklyn called uh, Girl in Landscape, where in the first few chapters I pretty much just kind of exactly lay out what it was like to, to have her die of a, a brain tumor when I was a teenager. And I hadn't, I hadn't gone at that in any of the other works, but that book is mostly set uh, – on uh, on another planet, and so people don't think of it as an autobiographical piece. And the narrator is is a girl. Is a girl, right? Right. It, was that a reason? Like, is that why you chose to to have the narrator as a girl?